Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shelley Meng. We have finally reached January, and after a heavy holiday season, many people are working on getting back in shape and self-improvement in the new year. This week, we talk with Michelle Lanford-Patel, an instructor at Stanford University School of Medicine and feature researcher on digital health interventions for obesity, and Aaron Como, critically acclaimed Fox News anchor and lifestyle reporter, to get the scoop on fad diets, fitness, and digital health trackers. Is technology improving the population's health, or are diet apps just another trend? Find out how to get healthiest possible this season. You know, Michelle, your research sort of around obesity and digital health. So just to sort of start us off today, what do you mean when you say health tracking and how does sort of health tracking compare to traditional methods of monitoring one's health from the user standpoint? Yeah, great question. So to give a little bit of background, tracking is also called self-monitoring. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, And it's coming from the user's perspective. So the user is tracking their behavior. And in my interests, we're focused on health behavior. So they're tracking their steps to try to walk more, or they're tracking their body weight to track the progress over time and potentially lose weight. Some people want to gain weight. I'm also really interested in tracking people's food intake. So they are tracking their own food intake. And on my end, as a researcher or clinician, I am looking at what they are entering and giving them feedback from that. But the the user is tracking their own behavior. So it's like my aura ring that I have on right now. Exactly. And then you collect all that user data that's sort of self-reported. Well, I guess it's technically not really self-reported because the ring does track. Yeah. I mean, I I can't add steps to my ring unless I actually walk. So in some ways, it's not completely self-reported reported in that sense. It's like you can't lie. I can lie about how many beers I'm having tonight, but I can't (laughs) lie about how many steps my aura ring take unless I go put it on my dog or something. Yeah. So I'm really interested in methods that aren't self-reported. It's not always possible, but for physical activity, there's so many devices out now that allow you to track your own behavior in an objective way versus self-reported. So something like the aura ring or a Fitbit tracker, for example, Body weight, we typically work with scales where you step on the scale and it's remotely connected through Bluetooth or cellular data. And so you could self-report that weight, but it's you know more convenient to step on the scale and then you're done. And then for food, there are some newer methods where you could take a picture and kind of a computer system figures out how many calories you're eating. That technology is not really fully functional just yet. Uh, So most of the time when I work with individuals, they are recording what they're eating themselves. But I like to use, if possible, using like an app or a website because those technologies will allow you to track your calories more easily or other nutrients if you want to keep an eye on sugar, for example, or fiber. Versus in the old days, you would just have a paper diary and writing down your food that you're eating. And then you would have a separate book where you would look up each item and see how many calories were in that grilled cheese, for example. So let me jump in here because I know you'd remind me that years ago when I was a graduate student, I actually participated in a study. I was helping a professor studying this nutrition intake. Mm-hmm. And one of the difficult, probably the Z difficulty here was really the data quality. Mm-hmm. And because people self-report what they eat, 
but usually, you know, they basically report what they think they have, either not what they actually have. Mm-hmm. But sounds like now with the modern app, the issue of the at least for that data quality seems like much better. Am I correct compared to the yeah old days? There are still some quality issues, but there's actually research that's out that has shown that the quality matters less. So the accuracy of was that steak. 300 calories or 500 calories, that matters less than actually just tracking more consistently over time because people get in the habit of, for food, for example, of tracking their food over time and that helps them kind of pay more attention to what they're eating. So the accuracy of on my plate was there three things or four things I ate or did I forget to track something? It seems to matter less, luckily, because people are pretty bad at estimating portions and (laughs) and also they forget what they eat so if they only track at the end of the day they forget some of the small details of what they ate or they didn't include the butter or the oil that was added Um, but it seems to actually that doesn't matter as much so that's kind of reassuring i kind of tell people don't worry as much as being 100 percent accurate i'd rather you just put it on paper or put it in the app get something down but one way to kind of help with that is to track more consistently throughout the day so as soon as you eat something or drink something to record that in your app right away so that you remember it and have a better sense of, okay, it was probably about this size, so maybe that many calories. Um, But what typically we find is that the act of tracking, if you commit to it, you tend to then be more conscious as you're making food decisions throughout your day of like, okay, if I'm going to have to track this later, I may not eat that extra slice of cake because I know. So that's like a strategy actually. Yeah, but that's that's both a good strategy for forcing these people to eat more healthily. But that raised a different question, right? Because you know, how do you? I assume your research you want to generalize to the general public, and they don't really necessarily being watched. And and so how generalizable the results would be? And the more the other angle of this question is, mm-hmm. is I assume that probably the people who want to participate in your studies probably is the most selected group than sure. people who are not eating healthy. So how much you worry about the generalizability of your findings or you're just focusing on the group, whatever you can, you know, work on. Saving any group is good, right? It doesn't have to be completely generalizable. So how do you deal with that problem in general? Yeah, so generalizability is an important topic. And of course, dealing in, in the obesity space where like over 40% of American adults have obesity, we definitely want it to be as generalizable as possible so we can help as many people. So one strategy is for the general public to get connected with a more structured weight loss program where we know that support and accountability can be helpful Um, in terms of who we're recruiting. So we try to recruit people who don't necessarily have strong digital literacy, try to make it broad and, and not make it feel like you have to come in with all this like tech savviness. But, you know, we do recruit through Uh, social media or through the web. So already we have a filter of people because that's kind of who sees it are people who are on their phones or on the computer. Um, So that, of of course, is an issue. I've done past studies when I was in graduate school at Duke and our lab there focused a lot on going out into the community and working with primary care patients who weren't necessarily seeking out our studies. We got kind of a list of names and we were able to reach out to them and 
I think that's one way around the generalizability issue because these were kind of a random sample of patients in a rural community health center in North Carolina. So there are different research strategies and some research questions are better fits for kind of like see who you can get and just try to study the question. And some, if you want to look more at the effectiveness and generalizability to go out more into the community and, and recruit that way. So I think there's different strategies for different questions. Thank you. Uh, sorry, Aaron. You know, as a data scientist, I get into these data quality questions right away. But let me turn that to you that as a frequent reporter on lifestyles, you have probably seen some good dieting and fitness regimes and probably some really bad ones. So uh, how does your experience compare to, you know, Michelle's research? It's fascinating to learn the data science portion of this because I experience it in covering gyms, you know, and fitness trends and trying to introduce people through a local news setting into healthier lifestyles. So I just taped, for example, a half hour fitness show in the gym to show people really simple exercises they can do so they're not overwhelmed because I think there are a few issues of people getting in shape. One, they're scared to go to the gym. Two, they don't know what they're doing. And three, they set goals that are too big and then they can't achieve their fitness goals. They'll say, I'm going to work out seven days a week. So the first week they might work out twice and then eat extra cake because they're upset with themselves and then never really start working out. Right. So I think what I've learned is consi- <laughs> liberty raises. <laughs> I'm raising my hand. I'm here. <laughs> we all do that. We're all humans. <laughs> and I do the same thing. People always say, because I cover restaurants, how do you eat so much food and not gain weight? But it's portion control, right? I'm not taking leftovers. I'm taking bites on set. And then I'm committing to going to the gym an hour a day, four to six days a week. So I think if you can make those commitments and promises to yourself and start small and build on those goals, then you can have the success and you know, data and science will prove that. Well, it's sort of what Michelle was saying is that it's not so much about tracking every single spray of butter and, you know, freak, you know, stressing about tracking every single little ounce, but it's just that, you know, if you can commit to the general overall tracking, that that shows over time that people can do a lot better. That brings me to ask Michelle, you know, you've obviously covered a lot of apps, a lot of different incentive programs. You've seen a lot over your research time. You know, is there any data that points to one method being actually the most effective? Yeah, so from promoting weight loss through behavior change, there are a number of strategies. I think it's a number of strategies working together. You need kind of need the combination. So you need goal setting, you need tracking your behavior. And then what's helpful, if possible, is to get personalized feedback. So what happens sometimes with some apps or things, you don't get a lot of great feedback. That's where having a specific health coach or a counselor can give you more in-depth feedback on looks like this, you know, this was working. What do you think made that work? And then you kind of go down that line and get more details. Um, So yeah, goal setting, tracking, feedback, having reminders to do those things and reminders to behave in certain ways or to track. That's really helpful because especially as you're starting a new habit or a new activity, people just forget, kind of forgetting to track is one of our, you know, big issues. So setting alerts on your phone or a calendar event, um, something like that, or even like a sticky note on your mirror can be really helpful. Going back to the goal setting, I think the how challenging or less challenging a goal is, is a really important question and kind of the literature is a bit mixed. So that's a kind of an area in the future I want to dive more into because if you aim too high that you're going to be disappointed from 
the get-go and then you probably will drop out or stop engaging. But if you, you know, if you set a smaller goal, that could be helpful. But if you submit too small of a goal, then you're not making a lot of change either. And then you're like, I've only lost a half a pound over two weeks. So is this worth it to put this much into it? Speaking of setting aims and dropout, Aaron, you have interviewed probably lots of people you have seen a lot. What motivates people to get to the gym or on the days or do something? On the day they don't really want to do it or eat well during the time. It's a busy week. You know, every one of us will find an excuse. Was, oh, it's fine. It's just one week. I, I will get back next week. Of course, you never get back to it. But are there some good examples out there of people do it? And is there any uh, serious studies about how people motivate themselves or that we are all kind of a, you know, fail miserably? I think that's where it's really important to study the mind-body connection because you have to have that mental want to be better on your off days and your tired days to get out there and do it. There was a woman who went viral on TikTok with millions of views because she lost a lot, a significant amount of weight by committing to five days of week, a week of walking on the treadmill on a 12 incline, three miles per hour for 30 minutes a day. And she said, 12, 330. Yes. Yeah. And that fitness trend, people have been, you know, really getting behind because it's something that's attainable. No matter how tired you are, you can watch your show, read a book and walk on the treadmill at that pace. And that's encouraging people to walk. So I think people like to feel like they're a part of something. So when they see someone who's achieved success, they want to join that. That's why groups like Weight Watchers see success because you have accountability partners and people encouraging you and a team behind you. And I think it's that team when it comes to fitness and mental health wellness, why therapy works, why having a personal trainer works is because it's somebody rooting for you on your team. We've talked a lot about, you know, sort of what these health and tracking apps or accountability partners can offer to people and especially sort of people in low income, you know, you can use a tracking app. You don't necessarily have to have a personal trainer or if you can't afford a health coach, you can use these apps or these sort of group accountability. But is there times where we've seen evidence of this level of tracking? Can it harm the user? you know, of being so regimented in your tracking or being so regimented in, in doing this, that the, the new introduction of these fabulous apps has actually harmed people. Yeah, so I can speak to that. So one of the first things I've done and other people in the field do is kind of screen from the get-go if they have any um, symptoms of eating disorders or history of eating disorders. Usually those people would not be a good fit for tracking-focused intervention. But there are certainly other types of programs that may be more suitable. And in, in those cases, I'd say like working one-on-one -on -one with a health coach or a counselor would be most helpful, thinking through like emotional eating and other issues. Uh, there has been research that looked at whether tracking over time has promoted any of these kind of unhealthy habits. Most of it has found no negative consequences, which is reassuring. I'm sure there are subgroups where maybe you should keep an eye on, but for the most part, what I've read is, um, it seems to be okay. So both of you talk about the uh, importance of, you know, behavior, right? And the tracking itself is a form to encourage people to behave. I can't help but to connect with the uh, episode that we run last month, which is on, you know, religion and health. And it turned out to be, you know, there's a strong connection or association between People are more religious, tend to be healthier, and there's they're kind of a part of the mechanism because the people you know practice religions are more kind of self-controlled. So I want to wonder if you guys know any studies about does people's belief or religion practice 
kind of help them resist the temptation of, uh, you know, fast food or, or just something else. Is there any anything about some other things going on that other than self-motivating that can help you to access well, eat well, you know, your religious belief, your peers, other social peer pressures? Is there any study of that nature? I'm not familiar with like religiosity and weight loss. I've seen some connections with religiosity with greater wellness in general, but I am really interested in like this question of, can you match people to different types of treatment? And so looking at, are there factors about the person, about their groups they're coming from that would provide us with enough information so we could tailor their intervention or recommend one intervention over another. So this is kind of a, a newer area as well. I'm just kind of starting research in this, uh, looking at a, a past study conducted at Stanford that compared a low carb versus a low fat diet. Some things that came to light were what's called self-efficacy. So their belief in their ability to eat healthy, for example. So self-efficacy for dietary control. So actually what we found is higher levels of self-efficacy. So being more confident in your ability to make healthy changes actually was a worse predictor of at weight loss. Really? Whereas having lower levels of self-efficacy at the beginning, people tended to actually lose more weight. And I think what's going on there is people perhaps with higher levels of self-efficacy were maybe overly optimistic and kind of unrealistic about what they could get out of the program. And mm. they may have therefore been disappointed in the results because they wanted quick change, they thought they could do it, and then they realized it's actually harder to make these behavioral changes, and maybe that's something that then got in the way, and then they kind of stopped doing all their routines, stopped going to nutrition classes or making those choices. So I think that's one factor on a person level that could get in the way. Another thing is like having support from your friends or your family uh, so one area I've seen is having less discouragement from friends that can actually be helpful. So if you have too many friends who are kind of nagging you or making it hard to stick to your health goals, that can be really hard. So those are just two things that I, I've seen recently, but this literature, I think, is kind of a newer area. Erin, I, I have to follow up on that with you. You know, TV ratings have to be some of the most pinpointed thing on the planet of who's watching what. So have you seen that different groups sort of respond to different segments that you do better? You know, have you seen different groups respond to different types of workouts or different types of food better than others? Well, it's interesting because we just launched three months ago an 11 a.m. show that's set in the kitchen, and every day we have a chef on, and we try to gear the segments towards motivational speakers, people that make you feel good, fitness trends, things like that, and we've been number one in D.C. since we launched, so I think there's a market for people that want to learn about nutrition, that want to be motivated and find reasons to connect with the community. So I've learned through the pandemic even, we started a Fitness Friday segment where we just explored other workouts for people to show them like, hey, you want to stay healthy even though gyms are closed. And it seems that a lot of people really got behind that and love the fitness segments. I think people want motivation and a lot of them don't know where to get started. So I think even if you look at social media trends, a lot of people follow fitness influencers. And even though they're not doing the workouts every day, they like to see that they're possible to do and like to watch those transformation stories. So I think the more inspiration you can put out there, the better. And if you can do it even on a local news level, people will rally behind that. 
path. Well, that makes sense that you're number one in DC because it's a motivational thing. It's not like, oh, you're fat, you're terrible, no. you're skinnier. It's actually like a let's all do this. It's a motivational thing that works better for people rather than a negativity thing. Sort of, Michelle, what you're saying that if you have negative around you, it doesn't work as well as if you have positive motivation. We knew this pandemic has impact on many things. And I just started wondering: Is there any studies out there to study the impact of the pandemic? I know it's terrible on the house, but in terms of the kind of a fitness, it, it does not encourage people to do more because they have to stay more time or do less because the gym gets closed. Is there any anything out there about that nature? Yeah, there are. There's so many coming out. I feel like every day, but it's hard to keep up. I feel like every study I read has a different finding. I see. So some studies say. You know, really bad consequences of the pandemic on your health.、Um, other studies say no impact because you start adopting healthier behaviors.、Um, you get in more routine. You're not eating out at restaurants, so perhaps your caloric intake is a little bit lower. You're not drinking alcohol as much or having dessert as much. There will be some reviews on this topic coming out soon, I'm sure. So we'll have to see what what we find. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Yoga with Adrian. She it, she does yoga online on her website, and I'm a huge fan. I discovered her during the pandemic when my yoga studio closed, and there are lots of articles written about her because she made yoga accessible for everyone in their homes, and she amassed this huge following from around the globe because people were practicing yoga along with her from their computers. So I think anything you can do during the pandemic to find a way to stay healthy, people were looking for, and I think a lot of people fell into these, you know, online fitness classes and kind of kept with them, which could be a good side effect of the pandemic. That even if you're busy, say you're working 50 hours a week doing research, you still have the ability to pop up your computer and get 20 minutes in of a workout. Yeah, that's a great point. And to add to that, I think with.、Uh... People get a little stir crazy at home, and so they wanted an excuse to do something. So a lot of people go outside and start going on walks in their neighborhoods that they didn't normally do that. But now that became part of their routine, and I think a lot of people are still kind of keeping that up. I have a question in terms of your thoughts on things like Dry January, doing a month re- reset. Are there any statistics out there that back up that they're good for you, or do you crash and burn because you drink more after? I haven't seen any specific studies that have looked at that. In particular, I'll I'll have to dig around. I was just curious. I can answer that one. We did a podcast、oh, on it. Tell me more. Shelly and I did a podcast on alcohol, and、um, I was very excited to hear that dry January is not necessary, <laughs> and it was that drinking small amounts regular every day is actually overall good for your health, and that、uh, doing a dry January doesn't do you. Any good? I mean, if you're some huge heavy drinker, sure, but you're going to go back to drinking again, so it won't matter.、Um, so I, I can report that on our podcast to drink or not to drink.、Uh, that the answer to that question was was go right ahead. And I'll say to go along with that, we've covered a lot of fad diets and juice cleanses and things like that. And a juice cleanse that's four to seven days, you might drop five pounds, ten pounds of water weight. But if you don't readjust your food habits and eat smaller portions and healthier food, your weight's going to go right back up. So I find unless you're going to use it as a reset, you're not going to see the benefits. Yeah, I think a lot of those types of events or. Having like a month that you're not doing something, I think it all comes down to like, is this trying to be a long-term change for you, or just kind of a one-month try something new?、Um, because that's where people could go hardcore then in February and start drinking a lot, for example, or you know, just to kind of make up for time they lost. 
So that brings us to our final question. We always do a magic wand question at the end of every podcast. And we ask both of you to wave your magic wand. So our question for both of you, Aaron, I'll start with you. If you could wave your magic wand and there was one thing people would have to do to better their health, whether it's eat this specific thing or eat this or track this or, or go to the gym 30 minutes a day and walk or whatever it is, what is the one thing you would advise people to do to better their health? I would say 30 minutes of physical activity a day, whether it's walking, whether it's doing yoga, whatever you can do to move your body for 30 minutes, it lessens anxiety, it reduces stress, and it gives you 30 minutes of you time to focus. And I think it really encourages a healthy mental, spiritual, physical connection. Michelle? Yeah. So I think given my research interest, I think if people could track their food for like two weeks, just to get a sense of what are you eating? What are those portions looking like? What's your normal routine? And what times are you eating? And what context? I think that could provide a lot of information that people just aren't aware of. There's a lot of aha moments at the beginning when you start tracking for the first time. And that could be helpful to a lot of people. So track for two weeks, 30 minutes a day, and we're all going to be all set. I love it. Well, thank you for this very healthy and uh, a very informative educational conversation. And I wish everyone a healthy and happy new year. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HSDR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer, Ari Frick. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Everything data science and data science for everyone. Thanks so much for listening.